Paul writes in uh, Colossians 3-8, through 8, We give thanks to God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, having heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and love to all the saints, on account of the hope laid up for you in the heavens of which you heard before, in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you, as also in all the world, and is, bear, and is itself bearing fruit, as also in you, from which day you heard it, and perceived the grace of God in truth, as also you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, who is for your sakes a faithful servant of Christ, who also has made known to us your love in the Spirit. You will recall that this uh, sentence has two primary divisions. First of all, concerning the prayers and thanksgivings of Paul and Timothy. And secondly, concerning the arrival of the gospel and its reception by the Colossians. And it is this second uh, area which we've been most recently uh, considering. Uh, First of all, that the gospel, in verse 5, held forth the hope of the heavenly inheritance. Secondly, that this was the original gospel that they had heard. Thirdly, that this gospel was and is the word of truth. Fourth, that this gospel did not originate in Colossae, but arrived there, complete, not requiring any addition from the Colossians. Fifthly, that this same gospel had spread throughout all the world. Sixthly, this same gospel was of itself bearing fruit in all the world. And seventhly, that this same gospel was working mightily among them as well. Eighthly, that it had done this from its very entrance among them. From the first day it was preached there, it had been bearing fruit in Colossae. And ninthly, This gospel held forth the grace of God, and it held it forth accurately in its true scheme. And tenthly, this they had heard and learned and spiritually and inwardly understood. And then, regarding the one who brought it to them, Epaphras, first of all, he had taught them the gospel and had done so accurately. Secondly, he had apostolic approval. He was recognized not only as a private Christian, as a beloved brother, but they identified him with themselves as regarding their ministerial labors. Thirdly, they especially approved of his labors among the Colossians, where he had demonstrated faithfulness and a servant's heart. And fourthly, he had reported to them of the Colossians' faith and especially of their love, and which he had made manifestly, undeniably evident by an abundance of proofs, so that Paul and Timothy recognized the Colossians as Christians and as a true church. And we saw, we've seen, how all of these things served to lay the groundwork for Paul's later direct attack upon the false teachings which were entering into the Colossian church and corrupting some there. 
Last time we left off by completing the exposition through verse 8, but we did not get to the applications, and so I'm going to begin uh, with the applications drawn from our last section, which was the second half of verse 6 through verse 8, uh, which was uh, from, speaking of the gospel, from which day you heard it, and perceived the grace of God in truth. As also you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, who for your sakes is a faithful servant of Christ, who has also made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now the first uh, two applications that I want to mention uh, were applications that I actually brought up in the body of the previous message, uh, but I just want to review them and expand them somewhat. First of all, the gospel, according to this text, is the revelation of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And we must never, never depart from that. We must never attempt to build on any other foundation. And if no foundation has yet been placed, we must place this there and nothing else. This ought to be the vital lifeblood of everything we think or do as Christians. Now, people substitute all sorts of things for this foundation, both uh, as churches and individually. Instead of having the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, as the foundation, the grace of God, in, in Jesus Christ, as the foundation, we have psychology, self-esteem. We have, instead of the sound preaching of the gospel, for the foundation of the church, we have Pelagian church growth or entertainment. Sometimes the foundation is laid of political activism or civil reform. And before long, the gospel is consigned to some dark corner as an interesting historical relic of bygone days, like some sort of loom or suit of armor that people would go to a museum and look at and say, how interesting that people used to talk about that and believe that in the old days. But now, of course, we are concerned about electing the next president. We're concerned about fulfilling worship with uh, entertainment ministries. We're concerned about making sure that no one in our church is a victim of the plague of low self-esteem. We must reject all of those things. and We must never substitute anything else. It's the grace of God in Jesus Christ that is the foundation of the church, the foundation of every individual Christian's salvation and experience. You must reject every false substitute. The second thing that we mentioned before that I want to mention again and expand on has to do uh, with having an intimate inward spiritual knowledge of the gospel. 
You will remember that we discussed the difference between knowing in an outward way the form of the gospel, that is, being able to repeat it, being able to say the truths of the gospel as we would uh, answering a question. How, how are we justified? We are justified by faith alone. That's the letter of the gospel. And there is a tremendous difference between knowing the letter of the gospel and knowing in an inward way the power, the kernel, the spirit of the gospel. Many here, many in fact in the scriptures are said to believe in an outward way or in a historical way. Think about what we just read this morning in Acts 15. It says, it says many of the sect of the Pharisees who believed stood up and said that uh, these people had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Well, Paul says that that's another gospel. We know that they were not, they did not savingly believe, but they had believed in an outward way. They had aligned themselves in an outward way to Christianity and to the church. They had believed in a historical way. But that is not true salvation. We have to walk a fine line, I think, with this distinction. On the one hand, we must instruct in the truths of the faith, the objective, propositional realities, the things that we can boil down to, to, to statements, to doctrines, to truths. We have to instruct upon those things. But we must never conclude and we must never give the impression that the mere ability to recite those things gives a title to heaven or a right to the name of Christian. Because it is one thing to say, faith alone in Christ alone justifies. And it is another thing altogether to actually personally believe in him and repose on him with faith and trust. And that is justifying faith, whereas the other is merely a description of justifying faith. <clears throat> I have also a, a few applications from verses 7 and 8 regarding Epaphras and what is spoken of with regard to him. We consider, first of all, the importance of the public recognition of approved gospel laborers. This is a regular practice of the New Testament writers, and especially Paul, and one which we ought to take careful note of. And there are several reasons why this recognition is made. It is, of course, an encouragement to those who are recognized. And it is also calculated to raise their esteem in the eyes of those among whom they labor and to breed a sort of gospel love and affection among them. But it's more than that, and there is another very important purpose to it. Remember something of the situation of the churches in those days. The churches were scattered. There was a minimal centralized relationship between them. There was no mass communication, uh, like we can pick up the tele uh, telephone or look on the television or things like that. No, they had only letter 
and person, personal communication, mainly accomplished by journeying back and forth. And there were many heresies and heretics, both inside of the church and outside of it. And there were many claiming to be brethren and claiming to be teachers. And in addition to that, there were persecutors and traitors all around. The recognition of gospel laborers was a kind of guard, a kind of fence or hedge placed around the church that helped to prevent certain disorders. With apostolic commendation, a church could be certain that a messenger was valid or a teacher reliable. And remember that there were many who were circuit-riding teachers, like the evangelists who went out from the apostle and many of these other fellows that seemed to not exactly be evangelists, but did not seem to exactly have a local charge. Uh, they were they were uh, frequented, I guess missionaries really, frequenting many different places. But what is our situation today? Scattered churches of minimal connection to one another? Heresies and heretics overrunning the world? Many, many claiming to be brethren and teachers? Wandering about? Uh, seeking to instruct us? How necessary is this same service in the church? And how detrimental is its absence? To put it simply, it is an important part of the duty of those entrusted with religious authority and the care of the souls of Christ's sheep to put a stamp or mark upon those who they approve, those who are sound gospel laborers. There is, of course, a correspondingly opposite duty, the disavowal, may I say the public disavowal, of false brethren and evil teachers. Now, interestingly, this is rarely done by name in the New Testament. It is overwhelmingly done by the expose of false doctrine. Only in a few isolated incidences do we have people actually named, such as Alexander the coppersmith. Beware of Alexander the coppersmith has done me much harm. Even though uh, the, the, the epistles, especially Paul's epistles, are filled with warnings of various heretical groups that were within the churches, and even though it is unthinkable that he didn't know any of the persons involved, he seemed to fairly steadfastly avoid actually mentioning the individuals and instead exposing the doctrines, such as in the Galatian heresy. In, same thing in the uh, Philippians, when he speaks of those in Rome who, who, uh, who preached uh, out of envy. Uh, same thing here in Colossians. Uh, same thing also in Second Thessalonians uh, with the, uh, the uh, resurrection heresy. <laughs> Same thing in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. We find the same thing in Jude and 2nd Peter. Always the doctrines exposed. And I think there's a lesson here as well, if we have eyes to see. It is sometimes necessary indeed to expose by name, but we should think hard before. I think that probably the expose of the doctrines that were given... Uh, I don't think anyone probably was in any confusion about who he was talking about by the time he was done, if they knew the situation. We learn something else also about the nature of a God-honoring ministry in these verses. First of all, we learn that the vocation of the minister is that of a servant of Christ. 
Anyone who enters the ministry with another end, anyone who demonstrates in their ministry another purpose, is by this word immediately condemned and exposed as one who came in not by the gate to shepherd the flock, but one who came through the fence to devour it as a wolf. And the judgment that awaits such impostors and hypocrites is unimaginably severe. Woe to that man who professes to be a minister of Christ, but is a servant of mammon, a slave to his own ambitions and lusts, a man-pleaser, a time-server. Offenses must come, it is true, but woe to them by whom those offenses come. Secondly, a God-honoring ministry is a faithful ministry, one that is constant in its devotion to the work of the Lord one that is unswerving in its adherence to the word of the Lord, one that preaches the whole counsel of God, one that applies the truths of the word to the lives and hearts of the hearers, one that carries on its ministry, whether present in preaching or absent in prayer, as was the actual case with Epaphras, and above all, one that holds fast to the true original gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, the God-honoring minister is one who is a servant of Christ to the church. Let's not misunderstand. We're not saying that he follows the doctrinal whims of the congregation or tolerates a democratic determination to sin against God as if by the popular vote of the congregation uh, the, the elder was thereby compelled to accept sin. Not at all. Instead, in the exercise of his ministry, he acts as a servant. That is what ministry is. It is serving, to impart aid and comfort and benefit. He comes to give and to labor in another's behalf. And this he does rather than being concerned about being served or being ministered to or receiving gain and benefit. Christ's ministers are servants for the sake of the church. And furthermore, in the exercise of their ministry, they are not lords. Even in the exercise of their authority, they are not as the kings of the Gentiles, but as equal brethren using their gifts for the benefit of the whole. This is a beautiful system, but it was amazingly and quickly perverted in the early church under episcopacy and popery. <clears throat> The historical examples are gross, unbelievable almost, when you compare it with the description given in the scriptures. And instead we find men who proclaim to be the highest servant of Christ upon earth, even the vicar of Christ upon earth. Rather than serving, we find them having kings crawling upon their knees in front of them, we find them being showered in riches, even being given a temporal dominion. But while popery is the grossest and, and most obvious uh, contradiction of this truth, this inversion is not confined to popery. Luther said that every man has a pope in his belly. And we find it the same perversion today 
rife in every governmental system, popish and prelatical, Presbyterian and independent, Baptist and pedo-Baptist, Reformed and Arminian, Reconstructionist and pacifist, everywhere you turn, you see dominion, lordliness, tyrannical reigning, rather than humble service and sincerity. And that is a gross and tremendous perversion of biblical ministry and the judgment, the assessment that awaits that uh, is most harsh. Uh, perhaps some may be saved, but they will be saved as by fire, having built with wood and hay and stubble and straw. <clears throat> now we go on. Uh, the next section begins in verse 19. And this sentence, this single sentence, depending on the text which you're using, begins in verse 9 and goes through either verse 17 or verse 20. It's that long. Uh, and in fact, even if you put the period at the end of verse 17, 18, 19, and 20 are really uh, clausally appended to it, so you really have a, a, a sentence that runs from verse 9 through verse 20. Uh, Clause piled upon clause. Conceptually, it divides rather easily into three parts. In verses 9 through the first part of verse 12, we have uh, the prayers again of Paul and Timothy. In the second part of verse 12 and verse 13, we have a discussion of the work of the Father in our salvation. And in verses 14 through 20, we have... Uh, a revelation of the glorious person of the Son and His work in our salvation. And each section flows effortless, effortlessly but not purposelessly uh, into the next. Now let's read these verses. We'll, we'll read uh, this first section, 9 through 12. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Verses 9 through 12. Remember now that the prayer, this section about the thanksgiving and prayer, began back in verse 3. We heard of their thanksgivings, we give thanks to God. We heard of something of the occasion of their thanksgivings, having uh, heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and love to all the saints. And we heard something of the grounds of their thanksgiving on account of the hope which is laid up for you in the heavens. And he mentioned their petitions, praying always for you, but he did not elaborate at that time because we digressed into a discussion and a remembrance of the arrival of the gospel in Colossae. And now what we're going to do is we're going to return where we broke off from, if you will. Although it, it's all woven together, it's not, it's not jagged, it's quite smooth. 
but we're going to return back to the thanksgiving and prayer. We heard about the thanksgiving, and it was elaborated on. Now we're going to hear about the prayer, and it will be elaborated on. He says, uh, or the words which return us to that subject are in verse 9, On account of this, we also, from which day we heard it, cease not praying for you and asking. On account of this, we also, from which day we heard it, cease not praying for you and asking. Now what he explains here, first of all, is the occasion or the, uh, of their prayers. Why were they praying? And particularly, why did they pray without ceasing? Or why had they been praying without ceasing? And in answer to that question, he says simply, on account of this. On account of this. Because of this. Now what does this phrase refer to? Where does it reference? Well, notice this. In verse 3, we heard of the thanksgivings, we heard of the commencement of the thanksgivings, and we heard of the grounds of the thanksgivings. And remember the construction on account of the hope laid up for you in the heavens. Now look at what we have here. He said before, we give thanks. Now he says, we also pray. We give thanks. We also pray. The also means not we also, not we in addition to other people pray, but in addition to giving thanks, we also pray. Uh, so that parallels uh, verse 3. Then he talks about the commencement of those prayers. From which day we heard it. What does that parallel? Verse 4, since we heard. And then what do we have? The grounds of the prayers on this account. What does that parallel? Obviously, verse 5. On account of the hope laid up for you in the heavens. So, what Paul is saying, this is just a backwards reference. What Paul is saying, we could paraphrase this way. Not only do we give thanks to God on account of the hope laid up for you in, he in the heavens... Uh, the, your right to which you've demonstrated by your faith and love, we also pray for you without ceasing on that same account. So they didn't just thank and praise God with an eye toward the glorious inheritance awaiting the Colossians in the future. That same vision of future glory also moved them to fervently pray now for the Colossians, here. And what we'll see is very fascinating. Their prayer is essentially for God to work in them now, to continue in them the things which gave them title to that inheritance, and to conform them to all the things that an heir of eternal glory ought to be conformed to. In short, to walk worthy of the Lord of that inheritance and to live now in this world as a citizen of the heavenly kingdom. But that's all coming up. I just wanted you to see how it's tied in together. So the ground of the prayer is the same as the ground of their thanksgiving on account of the hope laid up for you in the heavens. Now, we, we just mentioned already the next clause, from which day we heard it. He says, on account of this, 
we also, from which day we heard it, cease not praying for you. That, we said, is a parallel with verse 4. Having heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and love to all the saints. Its immediate reference, though, from which day we heard it, heard what? The immediate reference is to verse 8. Epaphras declared to us your love in the Spirit, and from the day which we heard about that love, from the very day that he told us, we've not ceased praying for you. So the immediate grammatical reference is their love in the Spirit, uh, but I think the parallel demonstrates again that it's the whole thing that's included. But the emphasis is on the report of their love and that, that manifest evidence presented by Epaphras. Remember that with abundant proofs, he made it so that they could not believe any otherwise than that they had love in the Spirit. It was, it was, it was demonstrated irrefutably that the Colossians had love in the Spirit. And so from the day which they heard of that, from the day which they heard that manifestation from Epaphras, they had ceased not praying. Now I want you to note that although this is a parallel with verse 4, it's phrased differently, and it's phrased differently for a reason. <clears throat> In verse 4, it simply talks about the, the occasion. Having heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and love for all this. That's all it says. Having heard, we pray. Here, there's a different stress. It says, from which day we heard. From which day we heard it. Uh, like the similar phrase to that in uh, in uh, verse 6, speaking of from which day they had heard the gospel, this is a matter of emphasis. It highlights the immediacy of their response of prayer. As, uh, as Edie puts it, the commentator, the receipt of the intelligence produced immediate results and led to prayer. The report did not lie in dormancy or slowly wake up the reciprocal love of Paul and Timothy. The effect was instant, close quote. So this wasn't uh, something they mulled over. This wasn't something where they got together several days later, you know, and Paul said, uh, I've been thinking maybe we should add the Colossians to our prayer list. Uh, and don't you think we should thank God for it too? And Timothy says, yeah, I've been thinking the same thing. Why, why don't we do that? It wasn't like that at all. Epaphras shows up. His report is powerful. In fact, his report undeniably evidences the, the love in the spirit of the Colossians and their title to the heavenly inheritance. And Paul and Timothy, probably from that very moment, and certainly from that very day, fall to thanksgiving before God and prayer in the Colossians' behalf. And that is the intended uh, picture, the immediacy of their response of prayer. There's two more elements to observe uh, from this uh, part of this verse. First of all, there is something descriptive of their prayers. He says, from which day we heard it, we cease not praying and asking. And of course, what does this have its parallel to? Back to verse 3, praying always for you. There it said praying always in the past. Here it's put in the negative. We do, we, we do not cease praying. And of course, uh, 
the idea is not literally unceasing prayer, as if they had begun praying and had not stopped, but regular prayer. I think we, we discussed that adequately when we talked about verse 3. The petitions began that day and became a part of the regular body of prayer which Paul and Timothy made. And finally, we take a brief notice of the prayer itself. It's described here by two words. <clears throat> <clears throat> prosukomenoi and itumenoi. The first word is the same as that one used in verse 3 for praying. And we demonstrated at that time that in these sections of Scripture, it does not mean prayer in the generic or general sense, but specifically petitionary prayer. Uh, petitionary prayer. Uh, 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 asking of God. And that is cleared here also clearly intended because he adds this second word to describe these prayers. And although the AV translates it desire, and it, it can have that sense, but only rarely, the meaning, the abundant meaning in Scripture, and, and the meaning always when it is used in reference to prayer, is to ask, to ask. It's so that the, the correct translation would be, we cease not praying for you and asking Asking. So these are petitionary prayers. These are requests made of God. Now there are three uh, brief applications I want to make from, uh, <coughs> from these verses. First of all, uh, the knowledge of the eternal inheritance and another's right to it by faith and love is not only grounds for thanksgiving but for petitionary prayer in their behalf, desiring for them now an outpouring of what they will receive in full only in heaven. See, this is a striking thing, this connection. It, it, it's, it, it makes obvious sense that uh, considering their heavenly inheritance and the eternal glory that would await them would awaken a response of thanksgiving to God. That, that seems clear enough. But it also awakens this response, and it does so repeatedly in the scriptures, this response of, of prayer to God in the behalf of those people about whom it is true. Uh, and prayer for an outpouring of what they will, uh, outpouring now of what they will receive in full in heaven. And so secondly, we asked before the question, how do we respond to news of others' faith and love? Do we respond with thanksgiving? Or do we respond with cynicism and uh, uh, unbelief? Well, now we ask this question again. How do we respond to news of others' faith and faith in Christ Jesus and love in the Spirit to all the saints? Do we respond with petitionary prayer on their behalf? You see, I think too often, if we get past the level of simply not believing it, of being cynical, of being unbelieving, of being, uh, uh, of, of really being uh, 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 very hypercritical, if we get past that response, and we get to maybe a little bit of thanksgiving, well, it stops there. Well, I've heard about that. That's very nice. I'm, I'm glad. Uh, th praise God for that. And then we go on about our way as if we'd never heard of the thing, as if it had never affected us, never touched us, never entered into our ears. 
when in fact the biblical response, the apostolic example, is not only to respond with thanksgiving, but to respond with petitionary prayer and, and, and regular petitionary prayer at that. So thirdly then, implied in this uh, is a duty. The duty of petitionary prayer in the behalf of the saints. And interestingly, implied in Paul's we cease not to pray is, of course, the practice of regular prayer. Because if we do not practice regular prayer, then obviously we cannot be said uh, to be making regular petitions in the behalf of our uh, brethren. The, it implies the duty, the practice, if you will, of regular prayer. This seems obvious, but it's a startlingly neglected thing. And not only regular prayer, but regular fervent prayer in behalf of the brethren. So we must ask ourselves, first of all, do we pray regularly? Second of all, do we pray regularly for our brethren? Thirdly, do we pray regularly for our brethren for their spiritual benefit. You see, that's a, that's a third and very important point, because a lot of people, if you took the content of their prayers and you, uh, you organized them by percentage, you would find that though they were ascending up to heaven, theoretically, in their uh, requests, Yet their hearts were focused entirely upon the earth. For all that they will pray. They'll pray for someone. They'll pray that they will not be sick. They'll pray that they'll get better. They'll pray that their broken leg will heal. They'll pray that they'll get some rent money to pay uh, this, this month. They'll pray all sorts of things. But how often do you hear them praying uh, that they might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that they might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Afraid it makes the other things seem a little bit mundane, doesn't it? Not saying we shouldn't carry those things to God in prayer. We're in fact as much told that we ought to and that we ought to trust him for them. But if that's the central focus of our prayers, it is a sign of a problem spiritually. Uh, it is a sign that we are earthly minded and that we have little real understanding of the important things, of the eternal things, and of the thing, because it, it, it doesn't ultimately matter if we don't get our rent payment for next month and we're out on the street. If we are filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, it doesn't matter if we're hung up uh, out in the sun to die by wicked people. If we are strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, it doesn't matter. Because we have won. But if these things are totally alien to us and foreign to our experience and to our desires, 
then we are not conformed to the biblical pattern. We are worldly-minded and perhaps even unsanctified and in danger. Because being translated into the kingdom of the world, into the kingdom of his dear son, gives us a heavenly citizenship and brings us a heavenly-mindedness that brings forth a heavenly-centeredness in prayer and in life. Next week, then, we will continue by uh, examining in detail the content and purpose of the prayers, the petitionary prayers of Paul and Timothy in behalf of the Colossians. Mm -hmm.